Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the creatures were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thanks, Liesl. Good job. Sure. Take it. Thank you. All right. Book of Revelation, a book that I have serially avoided for most of my life as a Christian. Uh, my friend Jesse, who came to the 8 o'clock service, we have one of those. You guys are never going to come, but we have one of those. Uh, Jesse shared with me that she's been doing the same thing, avoiding this book like the plague because it's so esoteric and difficult to understand. And it's been fun for me to uh, have the pressure of study because I had to explain it. And uh, hopefully I've done a fair job with it. I do hope you'll go back and listen to uh, previous uh, sermons to, to get a glimpse of kind of what's going on in this really amazing, apocalyptic, bizarre, beautiful text that is the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, with a text like this that can be a bit confusing and you wonder, what do we do with it? Uh, it's sometimes helpful to uh, pray that God would just open our minds to understand, our hearts to understand. And so uh, I came across this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, and I'm going to just pray this over us as we look into Revelation 7. It says, Gracious God and most merciful Father, you've granted us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit that the same word may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect dwelling place of your Christ, sanctifying and increasing in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Good prayer. Okay, so if, you, if you'll recall from the last couple of weeks, John has been given this apocalyptic vision. Apocalypse just means an unveiling. It's like he's seeing spiritual realities that are unseen by the naked eye. In John chapter 1, the whole thing is, is, uh, begins with John's apocalypse. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has written letters to seven churches, Pergamum, Smyrna, uh, who remembers another one? They're really eat. Okay, Laodicea was one of them. There are seven letters, which tells us, that this whole book of Revelation is 
contextualized. It, it has something to do with what's going on with these seven churches. God wants to speak something to these people. As we continue into chapter 4, John begins kind of the vision proper of his book, Revelation 4. He's standing in front of this open doorway and a voice beckons him, come on through, come up here, and I'll show you what must, must soon take place. And John is given a vision of an open door into heaven. And he sees things that blow his mind. And it's kind of like if you've ever seen a magnificently large work of art, how would you begin to describe it in narrative form? Well, one thing at a time. And at the center of his vision, John sees this grand throne with one who sits on the throne who's, who's covered in like, is brilliant like fine stones, fine jewels, and has a rainbow encircling the throne that shimmers like emeralds. And surrounding the throne are 24 lesser thrones. It's two sets of 12. It makes us think of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, old and new, encircle the throne. And, and joining with the, the elders, we have four living creatures, an ox and a lion, and one like a man, and one like an eagle, representing different aspects of creation. And so the elders, old and new, the creatures representing all that God has made, are forever around the throne in worship. And then such angels are a part of this too, 10,000 times 10,000, this innumerable crowd of angels, something like 100 million angels join in the song, worshiping him who sits on the throne. And then John looks a little bit closer and he sees in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll. The scroll has writing on the front and the back and it's sealed seven times over. These, these are the, the promises and the plans of God that are, are kept hidden and secret. Uh, uh, seals like this would have clarified who the intended recipient was and only the one qualified with, to open it could do so. And heaven was in mourning because no one could be found above the earth or on the earth or under the earth. No one could be found who was worthy to open the scroll. And then John begins to cry and a voice tells him, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And so he starts looking around for the lion, but there in the middle of the throne, he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It's not the first time that there will be mixed messages in Revelation where he hears a lion, but he looks for the lamb. And the lamb, looking as if it had been slain, took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne in heaven. He erupts in worship. The elders and the creatures and the angels, the elders holding these golden bowls, which are the prayers of God's people, all of heaven erupts in worship of him who sits on the throne and also the lamb. And in John's apocalyptic vision, Jesus is treated with co-equality with the Father. As the church worships in the Spirit, we see Jesus is being worshipped as divine on the same level of the Father who sits on the throne. John's vision continues. We get to chapter 6 and the Lamb begins to open the seals and, and he's unfolding God's promises, his plans for the world. And then we turn to chapter 7 and get a broader glimpse of the whole citizenry of heaven. And we turn to verse 9, and it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. There's so much I want to say about this text but I have to pick one sermon. So I'm not even going to mention what I'm about to say. I'm not going to mention it today because I don't have time. But if you remember from Revelation chapter 4, it says before the throne. Again, I don't have time for it. But before the throne, there's this great sea like shining like glass. 
It's an image that to get to the throne, you have to pass through the waters. And now you have this great multitude standing in front of the throne wearing white robes. Well, if they're in front of the throne, are they standing in the water? And it makes my mind wonder, maybe I'm wrong. It gives this imagery that sounds a lot like baptism. That to stand in front of the land, they had to pass through the waters, just like Israel had to go through the waters of the Red Sea to get into the Promised Land. The church has to go through the waters of baptism to join Christ in His resurrection. They're washed, they're wearing white robes, holding palms of peace. I don't have time for it, obviously. I'm not even mentioning it. But, but three things that I want to share from the text that enriched me in thinking about it. The first thing I want to share is, is, is I want to, to share about the numerical success of the Great Commission. In this vision of the age to come, the vision of all that is, and this grand multitude before the throne, we get a picture of the success of the Great Commission. Uh, Barna did a study, and a bunch of believers, 30-40%, don't know what the Great Commission is. It's, it's what we call this passage from the end of Matthew 28, where Jesus is ascending. And as He ascends, as He's being glorified before their eyes, He blesses His disciples and He gives them something to do. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples of all nations. And John sees in his vision a multitude that no one can count. Now remember, John's writing this in the first century. He's, he's exiled on the island of Patmos as a believer. He's been persecuted, writing to believers and churches, these seven who are persecuted and know the social cost of following Jesus. And while the, the Christian presence in, in this part of the world was multiplying, they were still very much a minority. Uh, the idea that someday they would become the majority, that the empire would itself officially become Christian, that the emperor himself would be baptized was, was laughable. It was unthinkable. They were a persecuted, ridiculed minority. And so thinking about their context as people who are very much outsiders, very much out of step with Roman society, how meaningful would it have been for John and for these seven churches to see that not only Jesus, who was executed by the state, was vindicated, but now you see this incalculable throng of people who are, who are caught up in the worship around the throne to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, I spent a few days in Nashville this week uh, with uh, C4SO. That's not a Star Wars reference. That's uh, the name of the diocese that we're a part of in the Anglican Church. stands for Churches for the Sake of Others. Peter and I were there together. And uh, it was, I loved being there. Uh, I, I was, it was the first time that we were together since 2019 when we were exploring whether to join. And we had lost a baby at 15 weeks just the week before. And trying to, you know, with our board, make good decisions for the church. And it was just emotionally intense. And this time we were there, and it was much more relaxed, and we were a part of this and learning what that means, and it's so fun. And I was struck by, um, one of the reasons it was fun was how like-minded we all were. Um, it, it was, we, were we were, you know, sharing in worship. We had similar philosophy of ministry. There was affection for one another. There was a sense of unity that was, was just really, really meaningful. Uh, we were very alike in lots of ways, but the other thing I liked about it was how unlike many of us were. It was the most tattooed group of clergy I've ever been a part of. Like, literally everyone had colorful sleeves, and I was like, I guess I have to do it too. So, come back next week, and I'll submit ideas for my tattoos. 
but we were so very unlike. We were unlike. Uh, we, we, people lived all over the country, but it was also one of the most like, racially, ethnically diverse group of pastors I've ever been a part of. Uh, since being at ORU, you know, I had not, not been among that many people of such diversity. It was, it was awesome. It felt really, really good to be among these people. We were, we were like-minded, and yet we had our differences and shared affection. And, and I loved it, especially I loved it because in, in some previous ministry context, I often felt like an outsider, often felt like I don't know if we're all on the same page, and you kind of look for your friends at the fringes. Now, I want you to expand that, that image of, of being outsiders, being misfits, and also belonging globally. I want you to appreciate that our values and our convictions as, as followers of Jesus necessarily put us at odds, make us perpendicular with the values and the convictions of the rest of the world. There's one songwriter I really like. They said, if it's us and them, it's us for them. We are different. We do stand out, but we're for those from whom we're different. And I think that we should, as followers of Jesus, regularly feel like misfits culturally. I think we should feel like outsiders. It's right that we feel that way. And the absence of that kind of tension may indicate that we've over-assimilated into American culture. I can imagine that there are some people, perhaps even in our church, who you feel like your kingdom values and, and convictions even put you at odds with the church or, or perhaps the American church more broadly. And you feel like the American church perhaps has been so over-assimilated into American culture and you just yearn for the church's purity to be restored. Now, then I want you to imagine the gift of being given John's vision, of seeing these people standing shoulder to shoulder with believers of every you know, language and nationality around the throne and, and worship. With that veil withdrawn, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see as through a glass dimly, but one day we will see in full. And imagine getting to see him who our hearts desire, seeing him as he is, being caught up in the thrill of finally being among our people, joining the worship of the elders and the creatures and the angels and, and the family of God that's spread all throughout the world, united in being his. I love just seeing the, the numerical success of the Great Commission in the passage here. The second thing that I love that is just screaming from the pages in this passage is, is the multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multilingual success of the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. And in red, red in light of this, you know, Revelation 5 through 7, it's like Jesus, is, is he's ascending, has a foot in heaven and a foot on the earth. And glorified in each, he says, I, I'm, all the authority has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all people, all ethne, all, all people groups. Go and do this. What was something new to me as a, as a student in college studying some of those through lines in the Bible from beginning to end was that God's heart from the beginning was always to create a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multilingual family. It was his heart from the very start. Um, in, in college, Emily and I dated in college and uh, actually beginning in high school. And I remember she was probably a freshman or a sophomore and along with some of her very, very zealous friends at Oklahoma State took a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. Has anybody ever taken Perspectives? Okay, yeah, more than, more than average. 
And Emily, uh, God bless her, is like driven by ideals and what's right. And she's going to the, to the best of her ability to do those things, even if she doesn't really want to. And so she was learning in the perspectives course about how God has a heart for all the nations and the church must be involved in reaching the nations. So we need people who are senders, who are helping give and get people on, on, the, on the mission field. We need people who are mobilizers, kind of championing the cause. And we need people who are goers and they actually go to those nations. And she's like, well, somebody's got to be a goer. I guess that's going to be me. So, you know, I guess I'm going to raise babies in the jungle someday. And I'm like 20 years old and I'm like, am I about to lose my girlfriend to the jungle? I'd never been out of the country, never been on a mission trip. And uh, she's, I mean, it was, it was a very real thing that we had to talk through in our relationship. And a couple of years later, uh, I took the course and, and really learned a lot. And we, we were missionaries in Honduras for a little bit. We've never raised babies in the jungle, though our house often does feel like a jungle. So maybe that's God was, what God was setting you know, the table for. We learned that God has always had a heart for all nations. Go to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, God is, is creating all things. He's, he's, uh, it's beautiful, it's orderly, and yet it's also wild. There's symmetry in days 1 through 3 and days 4 through 6. You get to day 6, the second half of, of creation, at the apex of creation. Leading up to that, God said things were good, 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 good. Now, he's made man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. And about this, he said, now that is very good. And then he gives the first humans a task. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He had this vision of muchness in creation. The, the trees and the plants were seed-bearing according to their kind so that they were going to cause more life to germinate and to grow. Uh, the, the, all of the animals, the, the fish, the birds were all reproductive. They were making a muchness of God's creation. When Genesis 1 describes the sea creatures and, and, and the sea life, it says it's teeming. And that's what God wanted for creation, a creation that's teeming. He says to the humans, be fruitful and multiply, and I want you to fill the earth. Like, explore all of it. And uh, we get, the, the world breaks in Genesis chapter 3 as humanity rebels and it kind of spirals out of control. We get to Genesis 11, kind of the end of that prehistorical part of, of the book of Genesis. And humanity has, is co-laboring to make a name for themselves and to build this tower. It's called the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And it's like they're going to storm the heavens. And it says, we need, to, we need to do this and work together lest we be scattered across the face of the earth. They were given one language to speak. And God disrupts their efforts. His plan is to, to fill the earth that humanity made in his image would subdue it. And so he scatters them and he gives them the gift of languages. Interestingly, again, I don't have time for it today, so I'm not even going to mention it. The day of Pentecost is kind of like a reverse Babel where God enables them to speak in the, the languages of all the peoples of the earth so that they can hear the gospel in their own language. He had a vision of muchness. He wanted, he wanted to multiply and fill the earth. We get to Genesis chapter 12, and God calls a guy named Abram, and he says, through your seed, your offspring, your family, I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth. And he takes him up and he looks and he sees a sky full of stars and he said, can you count them? It's like, no way, so shall your offspring be. Which makes me think of that Rich Mullins song. He says, sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. I was a stranger, he was a stranger in this land, I am that no less than he. Abram's given this vision of one family that will bless all of the families of the earth. 
This was God's heart from the beginning. As, as time went on, Israel became insular in their thinking, and, and at times they, they failed to appreciate God's mission to be a heart of all the nations, and so he sent the prophets to remind him. We go to, Genesis, or to Isaiah chapter 49. Imagine this being said of Jesus, or Jesus saying of himself. He says, listen to me, you islands. Islands are connoting non-Jewish people, the far-off Gentiles. Listen to me. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, you have spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. Paul talks about how Jesus is the mystery kept hidden for ages and generations, but now through the manifold wisdom of God, it's been made known through the church. Jesus, this, in the shadow of his hand, he was hidden. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you're my servant in whom I will display my splendor. It almost sounds like the words spoken over Jesus in his baptism. But I said, imagine Jesus in his passion, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, now hear this, this is the cool part. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant only to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's too small a thing to rescue only one family. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's too small a thing. Jesus cryptically at times referenced God's heart from the start for all nations in John chapter 10. You could probably quote verses from that chapter. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, listen to verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. Isn't that cool? I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. God's heart from the start has been a multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual family filling the earth. In the age to come, encircling the throne, we'll meet the 24 elders, the four living creatures, 100 million countless angels. We will also find the most diverse assembly of human beings ever, bringing the gifts and the beauty and the kaleidoscopic goodness of their redeemed cultures in worship of Him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. A scholar named Craig Keener said, both archaeology and writings from John's day show us that his audience knew of not only the Mediterranean world, but also of kingdoms and traders from West and East Africa, India, China, and the British Isles. So remote from the first Christians that the image of every tribe may have demanded considerable faith. Our geographical knowledge today is richer and the gospel entrenched in far more cultures. So we can imagine the multicultural chorus of saints from all ages, ancient Israel's Levite psalmists clapping African saints with joyful praises, European reformers with their majestic hymns, monks with their Gregorian and Ethiopian Coptic chants. An Ethiopian Coptic uh, person drove me around in Nashville this week. He was my Lyft driver. It was so cool. 
Latin American Pentecostals with shouts of triumph, Messianic Jews dancing the hurrah, and a generation of North American street evangelists doing gospel rap. Many Christians today think that the gospel obliterates cultural distinctions and sometimes expect those from other cultures to simply join their churches and assimilate their normal cultural style of worship. But this text suggests (laughs) that far from obliterating culture, God takes what's useful in each culture and transforms it into an instrument of praise for His glory. Have you seen uh, that uh, SNL sketch? It's kind of a recurring theme where friends are out to dinner and, you know, it's, you know, one of the first times getting together post-pandemic and they're just hoping no one brings up anything controversial. Have you seen this? And, you know, the meal's going well and then someone will say something like, well, you know this whole pandemic," and then someone else is like, careful. It's like, yeah, but we all know that Anthony Fauci, easy. And talking about race and race issues in our country right now feels a bit like that. Like, easy, John, what's he going to say? But I do want to say that what I think is good about many of the race-related conversations that have come to the surface, broken through in recent years, and the importance of hearing and curating, like listening to a really broad range of voices and not just people who are like me, So many of us are waking up to what's always been right there. We're waking up to the beauty and the goodness and the dignity and the worth of all people made in the image of God. And we're seeing the multiplicity and the beauty of God's gifts in this multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual family that he's been trying to start. And I think that to the degree that this movement has helped believers to reflect on racial bias or prejudice and repent of it, praise God. And to the extent that this has led us to to truly seeing, led each of us to truly seeing the beauty of each person made in God's image, I say, praise God for that. Because racism and prejudice will not survive the transition into the age to come. Because God's future is multiracial, it's multiethnic, it's multilingual, it's multicultural, and that's a good thing. That's how he wanted it. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. It's a vision of muchness. Now, again, I don't have time for this today, but the end of Revelation chapter 21, the kings of the earth bring their splendor, the splendor of the nations into God's new Jerusalem, and all of the beauty of the diversity of culture that's redeemed is brought before the Lamb. So good. The third thing I want to share briefly about the beauty of this passage is the success of the great shepherd. Uh, Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And then John gives a great answer to keep in your back pocket when you don't know the answer to a question. He says, sir, you know. (laughs) And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, it's a, it's, you hear one thing, you see another. You don't usually make robes white by washing them in red. But there's something about the blood of the land that purifies a person. Now, there's good reason to believe that the great tribulation language here harkens back to Daniel chapter 12. I wish I had time for it. It's really, really interesting. 
And it may even refer to this very specific and important moment in history from 66 to 70 AD where the empire of Rome laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls. They burned the temple. Daniel 12 talks about this will happen when the daily sacrifice is no more. And you think, oh, maybe that's the great tribulation it's talking about. If this is the case, the passage could be a nod to to the original listeners in this great tribulation, this period of great difficulty that they've been through and are going through. If it were written to us, it might say something like those who have come out of the great pandemic of the early 2020s and to those who patiently endured and bore up under this great persecution, this great tribulation, the text has a promise for those. It says, therefore, they are before the throne of God, these who have suffered for him and with him. They're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. It says, never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not be down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Uh, Do you all know WhatsApp? That's a messaging platform. A lot of people outside of uh, North America use it. And I'm on this thread with pastors from the Middle East and North Africa. It's like, how did I get lucky enough for this? And two prayer requests came through this week, one from a pastor in North Africa, a group of pastors. Five of them had been arrested for distributing Bibles. They'd successfully gotten tens of thousands of Bibles out into their country, and and they'd been caught with 30 Bibles in their trunk, and they were arrested. They're asking for prayer. There's a pastor in a country north of the Mediterranean. Uh, the pastor got a very specific, incredible death threat uh, and against him and his family. And he said in this message, he said, if they kill me, I'll be with my Lord. And when I, when I read messages like this, I feel like a fake pastor. When I read messages like this or talk to my friend who's our contact with the church in Syria, like I feel like I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. I read passages like this. I I think that John certainly had a view toward those who were martyred among the crowd of those wearing uh, the robes of white. I think that's certainly true. But I think there's a place in this passage even for people like us. People who continue to fight to believe even when we've never seen him. Jesus said in his conversation with Thomas, blessed are those who believe and have not, not yet seen There's mounting like evidence and cultural acceptability to like renounce one's faith. I think those of us who just fight to continue to believe, even when sometimes it's really hard, I think there's there's a place for us in that crowd. I think think about those of us who continue trusting despite disappointment. You pled with God for him to intervene and it didn't happen. And you fight to continue to trust. I think there's a place of belonging for those of us who feel like we just don't fit in the world. Like the author of Hebrews 11, people who say such things, you know, admit they're looking for a country of their own. 
And I think for those of us who sometimes successfully and perhaps mostly unsuccessfully continue to battle against sin because we know that it's beneath our dignity. We know that we are a new creation and we're meant to put to death those things that belong to the earthly nature and we fail and we try, but we continue to wage war against the sin that's waging war against us. I think there's a place of belonging for us in the crowd like this. And to the church of Jesus Christ that's scattered throughout the world and during the great tribulations of our times, we're reminded that this lamb who is also our shepherd is going to see us through and he's going to lead us to streams of water. Oh, I can't. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to reference Narnia again. I'm sorry. (laughs) The Gentile equivalent at the end of the last book is, is led into Aslan's country and he meets him, he said, <laughs> it says something like, uh, in the best of all, he called me beloved, me who is to him but a dog. It's like, oh, to see him, our heart's desires, the lamb will lead us through. He's going to make things right. He's going to tend our wounds. Our faith will be made sight. He's going to guide us to places of peace. And so John would say to his original listeners, and I think even to us, a reminder and encouragement to patiently endure, to hold on, to not lose hope, to continue to believe, to continue to to take your stand. Peter says, when you've done everything to stand, stand. And God is with us in the middle of it. He promised not to leave us. So I don't know what difficulties you're going through. Maybe they're circumstantial to your finances, to your job. Maybe it's your own difficulty to believe your frustration with this gift and challenge that is the church. Uh, Jesus is pulling for you at the right hand of his Father. And if we patiently endure, we'll reign with him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I think of the Psalms and say, remember, it says, you know that we are, you know that what we're made of, we are dust and to dust we will return. And how much we feel in the dust at times in life, unable to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. It, It can be so difficult to persevere in faith and belief. And sometimes our prayers are not answered the way that we hope. Sometimes we have questions bigger than the resources we feel available to find answers. Sometimes just due to apathy and the hardness of our hearts, we wonder, what is this whole thing that I've given my life to? And I pray, Lord Jesus, for us on the other side of the door, on the other side of the veil, that you'd you'd tear off a corner of the darkness and give us a peek into the light. That you'd nourish our souls on the reality of your present reign, Jesus, at the right hand of your Father. We do pray for our brothers and sisters all around the world who today are targets because they maintain that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. I pray, Lord, that you'd teach us from the courage of those who've given their life for you and those who endure more intense social pressure to be faithful to you, to joyfully defy the powers and the principalities of darkness. Give us the grace to see each other and to encourage each other. Help us not to lose heart. Remember how the scriptures say, God is not keep patient. God is not slow in keeping his promises as some consider slowness. Instead, he's patient, not wanting any to perish. 
Help us to trust in your patience and to be aware of those who uh, will perish apart from you. Fill our hearts with compassion. Help us to uh, be faithful in the work that you've given us to do. And now, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the gift of communion that you've given us. The subjective means by which, through the Spirit, we can, we can eat of you. And I pray that as our bodies ingest this gift, that our souls may do the same and that you would nourish us for another day and another week to continue to believe and to continue to stand even when we feel our knees buckling. Pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us so much more than that, but a means through the Holy Spirit by which we experience your presence and your power, giving us life. This we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.